What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is Conspiranormal. All right, well, let's get to it. I want to talk about some Bela Lugosi and uh, something even more horrifying, which is which is QAnon. So, <laughs> all right, we'll try to we'll try to segue. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure we'll do it successfully. Oh, I uh, thought of another drink you should have in the Zoom waiting room for your guests. Not just the Bilderberger Ale, but you should also have uh, you should have Captain Morgan whiskey. That's that applies too. So Captain Morgan was killed by the Freemasons. Yeah, yeah right. <laughs> like the, the whole conspiratorial liquor subgenre, you can have that in the refrigerator in the green room. I loved all the little allusions in the book in Bella Lugosi's dead to Freemasonry and. Uh, the one, the one part where like the mummy guy like throws the, he like throws like a statue of Albert Pike or something to block the wall. <laughs> yeah, that, all that was fun. Okay, guys, welcome to Conspiracy Normal. Uh, we got a fun one for you tonight. Uh, I'm here. Serfiel is as well, and drinking uh, our Builder Burger ales. And yes, our, our Captain William Morgan. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, yes. We've got uh, Robert Guffey with us uh, back, and it's been it's been a few months, but uh, it's been a few eventful months, and so we're going to talk a little bit about that. But we're going to talk about uh, his uh, latest fiction book as well, Bella Lugosi. So we're going to get into a few different subjects. Welcome back to Conspiracy Normal, Robert. It's always awesome to have you. I thank you for having me on. Yeah, man uh it's been like i said it's been just a few months it feels like it was only yesterday that we had you on before but uh right i think it was uh september yeah it's either september or november i was thinking yeah something Something like that that time yeah so that was we didn't know what was gonna happen 
Yeah. And I think that was when you had that whole series of uh, articles about uh, QAnon that you had done. And what magazine was that in? Uh, that was Salon. Salon. Uh, and and right. all five parts appeared in, I think, August and September. Yeah. And I think I came on just right after the fifth part. Right. Right. Yeah. So now you've got a new one that's out that uh, has a very interesting title about eating children's brains. So, well, well, right. Yes. The, uh, the full title is, um, uh, if you're into eating, if you're into eating children's brains, you've got a four year free ride. Uh, and the subtitle <laughs> is a QAnon bedtime story. Um, nice. I, I, I kept expecting them to say, do you have like a watered down title? But they never did. They, they, they liked that title. <laughs> uh, uh, so yes, this, this, um, they asked me, uh, I had done an article called Donald Trump's Operation Mindfuck, which was, mm-hmm. uh, published by the Evergreen Review on November 1st. And then, um, then they, that was, I guess, got a lot of attention. So they, they said, would you like to do a follow-up article that kind of, um, you know, where does QAnon go now? That kind of a thing. Uh, and at first, my reaction was that I didn't really want to wallow in in the QAnon mud uh, long enough to 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 do this again. But then I realized that this was a unique opportunity to basically document the collapse of an entire belief system in real time and how fascinating that would be. Uh, so I just immediately started writing it on the seventh, on November seventh, and then. Of course, it would be impossible to monitor every single QTuber uh, in existence. So I figured I'll just stick with the one I started with in the Salon series, which is Rick and Jean, uh, 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 Rick Rene, uh, and and the anonymous, semi-anonymous Jean, um, with his plethora of intelligence sources. Uh, and so I figured I'll, I'll just stick with them, uh, and I will document... Uh, every time their story changes. So I'll just write down exactly what they say. And then the way the, stru- the article is structured is you get Rick and Jean commenting and, and predicting uh, what is going to happen. Uh, and then it will then go to the real world uh, with uh, articles, newspaper articles, uh, me commenting on, on current events and see how what they're saying, then how it spills over from the QTuber uh, podcast world out into the three-dimensional uh, real world. Uh, and so the whole article is structured that way, almost as a countdown. And I knew I knew it was counting down to something, but I didn't know what exactly. Uh, I, I didn't know if it was going to be January 6th or it was going to be January 20th. Right. But I knew it would culminate in some, some sort of uh, firework display. Uh, and in, indeed it did, which is, is funny because when the Salon series first appeared, I got a lot of comments from people saying, why are you wasting your time? Mm. Why, why are you drawing attention to this? These are just a bunch of uh, nut jobs, and all you're doing is just drawing attention to them. You should just ignore them. Um, the reason I didn't ignore them is because, I mean, I guess I had ignored them at first, you know, because I was aware when they first popped up, you know, 2017. Uh, and didn't really bother to look into it very deeply until the beginning of 2020, around the beginning of the lockdown, 
when that's when I was talking to my, my, my friend who I've known for many years who lives in the Midwest. He's about 10 years older than me. And uh, we're talking about the lockdown and I was talking about how hard it is, you know, teaching these classes via Zoom and et cetera. And then he told me how the uh, uh, everything's going to be fine. This is actually a good thing. The the lockdown is a good thing, and then he started telling me about the black hats and the white hats, and how oh, no. uh, there was, in the military is uh, cleaning out all these underground military bases, uh, uh, saving thousands yep. of children who've been kidnapped by the Illuminati and dragged down into. The- they're they're cleaning out the dumbs. They're cleaning out the dumbs. Yes, indeed. Yes, yes. And, and 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 you know, ten thousand kids were saved. We've never seen them. But they, they were saved, and we know this. We know this. Why? Because Gene's military intelligence sources say that this happened. Uh, uh, and, and so when I was listening to him, like... It's just like Steve Quayle. You familiar with Steve Quayle? Oh, yeah, Steve yeah, Quayle. And what was yeah. the name of... Hawk, I think, is the guy. Hawk. Is, is <laughs> Steve Quayle always says that. He always talks about his military sources. That's like a common thing. Yeah. And, and that was... Uh, when, when when they were like going strong, like what year was that? Oh man, this was probably, I mean, late two thousands, early twenty, early teens. As I remember hearing a lot about him around that time. Right, and it, it was kind of similar in the sense that Hawk would have his intelligence sources, and they would make a prediction and it wouldn't come true, and <laughs> and there was like you know some imminent apocalypse. Right. right? Yeah. It, yeah. It is. It is similar. And and uh, and what's strange is, and, and the reason it's it's amusing reading the uh, article. I when they asked me for the article, I think the editors at the Evergreen Review expected like five thousand words, you know, uh, and I gave them twenty thousand words. Uh, and what's amusing about it, particularly if you read all four parts in a row, and part three and four will drop, I think, sometime this week. Uh, you, you, you see the story changes, you know, but they're absolutely adamant in the moment when they're saying uh, X is going to occur on March 4th. And this is absolutely what's going to occur. And my intelligence sources say that this is what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then it'll come to March 4th. And now it's a different story. And right. it's changed. Right. And then it, and it, and it'll, and it keeps going on and on like that. Um, I, here, here's a, uh, would you like to hear a brief sneak peek? Absolutely. And just to add, uh, that whole March 4th thing was this whole idea that was kind of like with the, it got combined with like the sovereign citizen movement a little bit. And so that they were, they were saying that Trump was going to be actually the, the real 18th president of the United States, because in 1870 or so we became the corporation of the United States. It, it just got like crazy weird. Yes. It was, uh, uh, um, Nasara, N-E-S-A-R-A, which stands for national economic security and recovery act. And it was, it, that was uh, something that was created in 2005 by a guy, a guy named Harvey Bernard, Harvey Francis Bernard, who was this engineering consultant. And uh, he, who, oddly enough, that guy who created the whole Nasara concept wrote a book called Draining the Swamp. Uh, uh, so I don't know if, if that's where some of this stuff comes from. Uh, it was this whole like uh, proposal for economic recovery for the United States. Uh, and um, the, the idea was they were saying – this is what they were saying back in 
you know, January, uh, that that uh, Biden would be arrested. They would enact Nasara, um, the, and, and the the U.S. corporation, the, the the fact that United States has became a corporation, um, and the last real president was Ulysses S. Grant, I believe. And so once Nassar goes into effect, the U.S. corporation becomes a constitutional republic again. Uh, that's, that gets rid of the United States Incorporated, and then Trump will be inaugurated as the 19th president of the republic. Is the gold fringe flag in there somewhere, too? <laughs> the, the, uh, the, you know, yeah, we'd go back to the gold standard. All the, you know, it, it kind of, oddly enough, it's kind of similar to the, um, the whole sovereign citizen thing. Uh, I remember there were people like Jordan Maxwell was oh, going yeah. around back in the early '90s saying if you if you ordered away for your birth certificate and then destroyed it, you wouldn't yeah. have to pay income tax anymore. Conspiracy's greatest hits. Uh, and uh, uh, and so and I remember um, around just before uh, March 4th, I was interviewed by a reporter for Salon who was doing some sort of article about all that. Uh, and he called me and he, he wasn't aware of any of that. So I, I filled him in on that so he could include it uh, in the article. And then he publishes it and he's quoting me saying what I just told both of you. And, and um, oh yeah, the article was called uh, uh, QAnon followers still think Trump will be inaugurated. On March 4th, National Guard will be ready. Uh, and so they, that was on February 20th, and the, the journalist was named Igor Durish, D-E-R-Y-S-H. And so he quotes me in there, you know, talking about um, that this is what they're saying. And one guy on Twitter, he, he retweets it and then tags CSU Long Beach, where I teach, and says, do you know that you have a professor who thinks that Trump <laughs> – is going to be re-inaugurated oh, no. uh, and that Nasara is going to be enacted. And I'm sitting there just going, blah, 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 blah. I mean, have, I was like, has all reading comprehension just flown out the window? He thought because I was yes. talking about it that I was advocating it. We are very uh, familiar with that, Robert. Unfortunately, uh, we talk about a lot of things and uh, it doesn't really matter what context. Uh, if we say certain words, it's just uh, some people are going to take the, the exact opposite way. Mm-hmm. It, it's a very peculiar uh, 21st century phenomenon. Yeah, I, I, I don't. <laughs> it's. It's. Uh, I, I'm not entirely sure where it comes from, but yes, if it, it context doesn't matter, and uh, you're talking about something where you're analyzing it, but uh, no, you're not analyzing it. You're actually supporting it because they didn't take the time. I, I knew people who uh, I would describe them as people who just read the headlines. You know, they didn't read the article; they just read the headlines. These people—they don't even read the headlines. <laughs> it's like, that, that's too much trouble. So, so they have problems with reading comprehension and understanding the English language. So, uh, uh, yeah. So that that guy tried to get me fired because he thought that I thought that Biden was going to be pulled out by his hair, uh, and 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 et cetera. Uh, uh, so, but that didn't. That didn't work. Um, so on on uh, January 16th, so this is a section from the, the part that will be coming up. This is involves, um, there's another Q-tuber named uh, Kirsten Weldon. Have you heard of her? Sounds familiar. 
Yeah. She she has uh, on on January sixteenth. She has Jean on her show. Uh, and so this is a, a brief excerpt. Uh, it's now January 16th, and Jean decides to appear on a QAnon YouTube channel hosted by a woman named Kirsten Weldon. Weldon has a talent for spreading her own brand of QAnon sense, including claims of assassination attempts against Trump that never occurred. Only recently, she insisted that the 2018 false alarm about a missile threat in Hawaii was actually an assassination plot against Trump, and the red dots that appeared on Trump during the 2018 Christmas tree lighting ceremony were part of a Mossad effort to try to take him out. (laughs) When Trump made a surprise and unexplained visit to a hospital in November 2019, Weldon Weldon claimed it was because Trump's official food taster was in critical condition because they poisoned all the salt and all the water in the White House, so they had to pump his stomach. They poisoned the cheeseburgers? Is that what happened? They poisoned the McDonald's. Exactly. Mm-hmm. The Big Mac got poisoned. Now, just four days before Biden's inauguration, while obsessively primping her hair and gawking at herself in her Zoom camera, Weldon implores Gene to explain what really happened to Nancy Pelosi during the January 6th attack on the Capitol. Here is Gene's response. Quote, the real Pelosi... During the first surrounding of the Capitol, when she saw the National Guard, she went through the tunnels, went home, and then she ran for it down to the Gulf Coast of Florida, trying to get a deep-sea fisherman guy to take her out past the military blockades. Then she went over to the Atlantic Coast. She was trying to flee the country. Uh, Then she went over to the Atlantic coastline and tried the same thing. She went all the way up to Myrtle Beach, where she finally got somebody to take her out, but the guy was turned around by the Coast Guard. So then she went down to Charleston, and she went to the pier, and a TR asset, meaning a a guy from the nuclear aircraft carrier, Theodore Roosevelt, a TR asset came off the carrier and chased her down the street. She's running down the street, goes into an alley with her bodyguard, her Chinese bodyguard, a kung fu guy, and they hid behind a dumpster. Uh, So the Pelosi we're seeing now is a clone. They captured her, and she was arrested. Oh, okay. uh, the submarine she was trying to get to was out past the blockade, and the carrier group scrambled assets, and they depth-charged the bejeebers out of that thing. The troops were sent in, and all the people in the Congress and Senate have already been cited to be under arrest, and the secret space program fleet that Trump has, they have oh. technology that can render people unconscious, and they just go in, make them all go to sleep, and pick them all up. So Trump signed the Insurrection Act, and all he has to do is announce it. It's a classified document. It can't be shown to the public. The people who are saying that it's not signed don't understand the law. It's signed, but until he announces it publicly and then shows it at the same time, it's not active. It'll be active once he shows it in public. We're in a very high state of alert. There are military troops all over the country. The National Guard's activated, unquote. So, and then continuing with the text, in case you're having trouble following all that, here's a summation. National Guard has been deployed not because a mob of violent QAnon followers assaulted the Capitol, but because Nancy Pelosi and her Kung Fu bodyguard attempted to escape the secret space program fleet inside a foreign submarine. With a straight face, Weldon then says, I have a question for you. Do you think they're going to let the Biden inauguration go on? Gene, quote, from what I've been told, the plan is that they'll let it start. Then they'll, they'll announce the Insurrection Act and arrest Biden in the process. That's currently what the plan is, unquote. Uh, and so, of course, that didn't happen. Uh, but, <laughs> and it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if it happens or not. Because no, then they either, at one time, Rick and Gene would try to explain why it didn't happen. They'll say, well, the timeline uh, they got this thing with timelines. So I go into this in part two, oh, where no. they're almost yeah. like uh, magic practicing Christians. 
Uh-huh. Like they yeah. think that um, they they think that uh, everyone in Hollywood is using these sigils, like sigil magic, to basically manifest reality through their fiction, uh, which is actually quite interesting. I mean, Grant Morrison talks about using sigils, you know, in his fiction, um, and and so they're they're trying to turn the tables on the occultists. And they're doing their own Christian magic. So they're like yeah. magic practicing Christians. Spiritual warfare. Spiritual warfare. I guess they leave all the sex magic stuff out of it. I, I don't know. I, I would like to ask. All the fun stuff, right? Do they do all the Aleister Crowley kind of high level <laughs> sex the magic rituals? Yeah, but strictly missionary. <laughs> I somehow doubt that. But <laughs> and, so, and so they're... They actually talk about it in terms of timelines. He'll, he'll, uh, Rick will go on the air and say, well, we're not accepting their timeline. See, I mean, this is kind of the way Trump talks, where he'll come out and he'll say, he thinks if he says it as many times as possible, it will come true. It will manifest in reality. So it's not exactly lying. You're just trying to manifest the timeline. So when Rick and Gene go on and they say, this is what's going to happen, it's it's not lying or prevaricating. It's just you're just manifesting reality. It's just the power of positive thinking. It is the power of positive thinking. And in fact, uh, Donald Trump. I go into this in part two that Donald Trump he 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 grew up in the in the the church that was uh, t- to which the the author of the power of positive thinking was yeah. also uh, a member. Norman Vincent Peale. Norman Vincent Peale. Yeah, exactly. I, of course, I like the uh, Lou Reed has a song called "The Power of Positive Drinking." Yeah, which yeah, is that's a, good uh, a better uh, uh, version of that. Uh, but uh, uh, it says so. Um, go, skipping forward in the text a bit. Uh, it's now March fourth, the day the U.S. military is scheduled to barge into the Oval Office, drag Biden out by the hair, and replace him with Trump at long last. Needless to say, this doesn't happen. So Rick begins today's episode by telling his loyal flock. Make sure you're not watching the news before you're in the Word of God, because Satan's using that to try to control you into his timeline. It's kind of like a virus affecting you. After this wise advice, Gene appears on the show to announce that 200 members of the Special Forces lost their lives earlier that day while liberating a cabal-controlled military base located deep beneath the Atlantic Ocean. Not a single mention is made of the fact that Gene's prediction about March 4th has not come to pass. His previous statement, that's the most likely probability at this time, warrants at least the passing mention of the date, does it not? Brick and Gene aren't even bothering to explain the discrepancies anymore. Instead, Gene informs his audience that the World Wildlife Fund, the largest conservation organization on Earth, must be defunded as soon as possible. See, now, Black Lives Matter, they're talking about defund the police, right? They're, Rick and Gene, they don't want to defund the police. They want to defund the World Wildlife Fund. Why? Uh, the symbol of the WWF is a panda, and has been since the organization's establishment in 1961. Here's a direct quote from Gene. Quote, the panda logo is a well-known pedophile symbol. Okay. Unquote. Rick nods and says, mm-hmm. Yeah, wow. Very sick. Very sick is an appropriate diagnosis, of course, but not for the panda. Um, uh, the, the, now, uh, oddly enough, uh, Bear Manor, which published um, the book I wrote, uh, I co-wrote with my friend Gary Rhodes, film scholar, Gary Rhodes, uh, we wrote a book, a nonfiction book about Lugosi called Bell Lugosi and the Monogram Nine. Uh, and it came out in 2019 where we analyzed the films that Lugosi did for Monogram Studios during World War II. And Bear Manor, 
their their symbol, their logo is a panda. So the I, it all it all goes back. I, I guess you know if if Gene knew that he could accuse anyone published by Bear Manor of secretly being a pedophile. Uh, I, I, I guess his intelligence sources gave him uh, this information. I, I, I Early on, I was listening to Gene. I was trying to figure out, does, is Gene making this stuff up off the top of his head? <laughs> or, or is he getting this information from somewhere and repeating? Yeah. I, I, I've decided after listening for, for several months that Gene... Uh, he mentions at one point how out of the blue, in fact, this is at the, right at the end of part two, he goes, out of the blue, these spies started coming into my life, just out of the blue, and they started giving me all this information. Uh, and so that's where I quote Robert Anton Wilson, um, uh, where he said, uh, w- Wilson said that every day he wakes up in the morning, he, he asks himself, have I become a useful idiot yet? Uh, which is a good you know, Zen-like exercise, I think. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't think it's something Gene does. Um, uh, cause if, if mysteriously out of the blue, I just started meeting all these intelligence agents and they started giving me information about Nancy Pelosi's a clown and everything they tell me is all about how Trump needs to be reelected for a second term. I would stop a moment and think, Hmm, I, I wonder if there's a secret, a hidden agenda where they want me to go on the air and say this stuff, <laughs> but I guess there's no moment of self-reflection well, at all for, for Gene. That brings up the question, though. So, is do you think that he's is he making that up, or do you think that there are people that might actually be feeding him weird information like that? I, my inclination is to think that there are actually people feeding the information, and he's for some reason believing it. Um, okay. I've, I've encountered this before. Back in 2017, a, a woman contacted me after having read Camellio. And she wanted to talk to me. And when I, I agreed to talk to her, I talked to her for like a long time, for several hours one day. I asked her if I could record the phone conversation. She, wasn't uncomfort- she was uncomfortable with that, so I didn't record it. Um, but she wanted to give me all this information about um, UFOs and, and UFOs being man-made craft. And she had contacts in the intelligence world. She talked to me for several hours, and then finally it got to what the main point was that she wanted me to come away with, which was I had quoted Melinda Leslie. Melinda Leslie is a my lab researcher. She claims to be an alien abductee, and she investigates my labs, military abductions. In other words, people who claim that they were abducted by aliens and then later re-abducted by humans, usually military types. Um, and a lot of these people claim that the experiences they have with the military is far more horrific than the experiences they had with the aliens, which is kind of interesting. Uh, and, and, and so I quoted Melinda Leslie in like the final chapter of Camellio. She, she wanted me to know that, that Melinda was actually uh, like an intelligence agent and was spreading disinformation. And, and she said she knew this because her contact in the intelligence world had, had told her this. Uh, and she told me how she believed everything. I, I said, well, why do you believe? She had no way of knowing that. I've known Melinda for like 20 years. <laughs> right? uh, and and I, said, I asked her why she believed that. And she said, well, her intelligence uh, contact, this guy who had been in military intelligence, uh, had demonstrated to her that he knew what he was talking about because he said, 
go to this particular road at this particular time and you'll see a UFO because I know that that's when they're test, they're doing the test flights. And she did and she saw it. Now that would be impressive if someone <laughs> came to you and said, if you go to a certain point at this road at, a, at 8 p.m., you know, on the, on the 22nd, uh, you're going to see a flying saucer and you went there and you did see it, you would probably at that point then believe everything else that they told you. So I don't know if there's something like that going on where, where for some reason Gene just accepts whatever these people are telling him. Either he accepts it because he's just naive or maybe they demonstrated to him that that somehow maybe they made a prediction that came true and then that nailed to him. He thought, well, obviously everything that they tell me must be true then. Uh, or it's like a he, he's a part of it now, so he's an insider and he probably really likes that. Well, that's, I mean, that's part of it. I mean, it isn't part of his whole, he's made a name for himself, a, a name, uh, uh, quote unquote, by going on uh, these podcasts and, and reeling off this, this crazy stuff. So then I guess, you know, you need content. Uh, so, you know, if, if you don't go on with the content, then what, do you, what are you going to talk about? I mean, if you begin questioning, <laughs> you need to talk about something. So uh, we know the feeling. <laughs> <laughs> it's part of the problem, but yeah. It, it, it's similar to me. Uh, it, Gene reminds me of um, uh, Peter Beater, the, the, the infamous Thank uh, you, Dr. Peter Beater. That's what I was thinking. I was just thinking about Peter Beater, and I couldn't remember his name, but yes. I, I got to tell you, I, very rarely am I talking to someone and they say, I was just thinking about Peter Beater. That, <laughs> that, that does not happen. In my normal life, like I'm not walking down like the campus at CSU Long Beach, and someone comes up to me and says, "You know, that's funny. You should mention Peter Beater." I was just thinking of Peter Beater. That that never happens. Um, uh, oddly enough, Peter Beater's book. When I when I first went to CSU Long Beach as a student, as an undergrad in '94, I went to the CSU LB library, which was quite large, much larger than the library that had been at El Camino, which is a community college I had been attending prior to that. The first book I looked up in the library catalog was The Conspiracy Against the Dollar by Dr. Peter Beter. And they had a copy. And I thought, well, this is, this is uh -huh. a good library. If it's got a book by Peter Beter, it's got to be a good library. Uh, so Peter Beter was an actual economist. He wasn't just some like kooky guy. He was a professional economist uh, who um, had written this book called The Conspiracy Against the Dollar in 1971, I believe. And it was published by a major you know, New York publisher. And then at some point after that, he starts, you know, the pre-internet, uh, these things called, uh, what he called audio letters. And you could subscribe to them. So you would pay a subscription and then he would send you an audio cassette in the mail. Uh, and so like once a month, you'd get this audio cassette in the mail, which was, which was Peter Beter just talking into the tape recorder about the latest information he had gotten from his insider military intelligence sources. And they're all up on YouTube. <laughs> if you, if you want to dig swim through the, uh, the, the Peter Beter audio letters My and God. oddly enough, it it, uh, it inspired Peter Beter inspired one of my favorite punk albums, uh, "The Only Lovers Left Alive," uh, by Stiv Baders. Stiv Baders took his name from Peter Beter. <laughs> really? <laughs> it, yeah, he was so inspired by Peter Beter that he, he chose as his punk 
name, Stiv Baders, and then did this album called Only Lovers Left Alive, which is the concept album entirely based on the theories of Peter Beater. In fact, there's a song called Peter Beater, which is amazing. <laughs> you really need, if you've never heard it, go to YouTube, look up Only Lovers Left Alive, Stiv Baders, and you'll, you'll find the, the album. And each song ties into Peter Beater's theories. I think the album came out in 1981. Wow, I had no, I had no idea about that. Wow. Okay, <laughs> interesting. The funny thing is, well, uh, my friend Damien, uh, who is, I wrote is, about in Camellia, post, post Dead Boys. This uh, yes, yes. Only lovers left alive was after Dead Boys. Right. Uh, and the funny, I mentioned to Damien many years ago, Peter Beater, and the first thing he said was, "He goes, oh, what did you get that from Steve Bader's? Like he had it backwards." And like, I, and I thought he was joking, and then it turned out no, there really was a connection. Um, uh, and so, uh, Peter Beater, at first, the audio letters are about they're giving you sort of alternative, alternative facts uh, about what's going on in terms of the economy of the United States, and it increasingly gets more and more insane as it goes on until finally he's talking about. The Battle of the Harvest Moon, which was supposedly this epic space battle between the Rothschilds and the Rockefellers. Uh, and the Rothschilds, or the Rockefellers, I can't remember which one, had this, this particle beam weapon on the moon, and there was a, they had a, a base up there. Uh, and then it got stranger after that, where he, he said that his military sources were t- telling him about what he called organic robotoids. Yes. And uh, the organic robotoids were Russian clones. <clears throat> they were clones created by the Russians. That, and the, the Russians were killing off major uh, politicians, uh, military figures, and replacing them with these organic robotoids. And one of them was uh, Jimmy Carter, who was killed. So that's why the, the Carter we see today, just he just keeps going. You know, I mean, he's still so, alive. So this is similar to the Nancy Pelosi yeah, thing, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Oddly enough, yes. Yeah, I, right. I mentioned this in the in the Salon series that Peter Beter is one of the sources that <laughs> I think has been these culture vultures uh, who were hired by the 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 modern equivalent of creep, the committee to, committee to reelect the president, which was you know the plumbers, uh, yeah. Ed, Ed Hunt. E. Howard Hunt and G. Gordon Liddy, their entire purpose was to reelect the president at all costs. Uh, I think that, that QAnon was like plan B or, or plan C or plan Q. Uh, you know, <laughs> if, if, if it looks like he's not getting reelected, we activate plan Q. Yeah, well, there's, there's indications, you know, that Flynn is behind some of it. So, yeah, I can totally see oh, that. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and, and, and in, in with, the, uh, with Peter Beter, the parallel is uh, not the, obviously the Nancy Pelosi thing. Also, there's uh, some of the QAnon people think Hillary's a clone as well. Uh, but the uh, so he starts saying that Jimmy Carter's a clone and and and, and Kissinger and um, and I always wondered. Okay, Peter Beter obviously was not insane. <laughs> he had he had he was a professional economist. You know, he so he must have believed his sources for whatever reason whatever they must have demonstrated something to him that that made him think that whatever they were saying was gospel yeah that's the only thing i can think of as to why he was so uh convinced that whatever they were saying was true um 
and so I think I do think there's a similar uh, situation going on here. I it, it also the uh, how how uh, QAnon draws upon pop culture, like Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. How they draw upon Adrenochrome, mm-hmm. yeah, from Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, and they throw that in. Uh, and the same thing with the organic robotoids. I th- there's an episode of the Six Million Dollar Man <laughs> that precedes Peter Beater's audio letter- letters, where the Six Million Dollar Man has to the, the Russians are going around killing military people and replacing them with clones. And there's one episode where John Saxon, of all people, has been killed and replaced with a John Saxon clone. Uh, and so the Six Million Dollar Man has to fight the John Saxon clone. And I remember as a kid, you could buy a six inch John Saxon doll and his face would come off and you could see the circuitry underneath. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I've seen that. And so I, I was like, like, do these, nice. things, do they, are they just lazy? Do they just draw upon like whatever, <laughs> whatever well, movie or TV show? Yeah, was it's, crazy five years it's, earlier? it's able to absorb all these previous conspiracy theories. It's able to adapt to any circumstances it seems because then it just becomes part of the plan still. And I just I don't think we've ever seen anything quite quite like this as popular. Right, and that and that's why I I call it in the Salon series I called it a a secular religion uh, because I mean obviously there is a lot of Christian nationalism woven into all this uh, and the kind of ne- neophobia xenophobia rolled into all of it, but uh, as I mentioned in the in the Salon article I do I know people who are um, former Democrats who got sucked into the QAnon thing. You know, I mean, you don't necessarily need to be Christian to, to believe it. Uh, you can be a fan of the paranormal and just, you know, you believe in that there are demonic entities, but you may not necessarily be a Christian. And you may think that buy into the whole idea that there are these demons and, and the Illuminati are sacrificing children to the demons in the underground bases. You don't necessarily have to be a Christian to, to think that's happening. Or you could be an atheist and think that, well, they, you know, they, they just think that they're demons, but they're not really. And they're just these crazy cultists who are ruling everything from behind the scenes. So right. it, 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 QAnon managed to, I think that's what's unique about it. It managed to blur the lines and it, it doesn't appeal just to Christians. It appeals to all these other people as well and pulls them all under this like weird big tent. Well, it manages to pull things in from real stuff like i mean the franklin cover-up and those type of things i mean it manages to pull and of course the epstein story you know is going on all at the same time yeah i think the epstein more than anything really contributed to them being able to have something to point at and be like oh well see it's really going on so this you know what we're saying must be going on right but you know the timing is really interesting because i think it was 2016 when that woman came out and said that uh, Donald Trump had raped her when she was 13 mm-hmm. at Jeffrey Epstein's house in New York. And uh, then she immediate, she abruptly withdrew the right. allegations. I don't know that we ever found out what her name was and, and didn't move forward with, with this planned lawsuit. Uh, and so it's interesting that then QAnon appears <laughs> and manages to distract yeah. You know, just distances Trump from Epstein, even though he's in Epstein's little black book, just like. Yeah, he's the savior of the children now. Yeah. Yeah, yes, it's, it's all, you know, I, I find that it's rather than quoting from Noam Chomsky or 
Michael Parenti or uh, Howard Zinn or any of these academics about uh, esoteric political theories, uh, it's better to draw upon uh, pop culture to illustrate these things. There's an episode of The Office, you know, the sitcom with Steve Carell, uh, where uh, Steve Carell starts, uh, finds out here's a rumor that the, the guy who works for him, Stanley, is having an affair, he's cheating on his wife. And Steve Carell is so happy to learn this, that he has this secret gossip. He goes around, he tells everybody. <laughs> then he finally talks to Stanley and he realizes, oh my God, I'm ruining his life. I, I just told everybody the secret. I, I might be destroying his marriage. So there's a scene where Steve Carell is in his office and he's talking to the camera and he says, how do you unsay something? How do you pull back information you've already told everybody? You can't. So what he then does is he goes around and spreads a whole lot of false rumors about everybody in the office. <laughs> Absolutely just completely absurd, ridiculous stuff so that it covers up the original rumor and no one knows what's true or not. Uh, yeah. That's QAnon. <laughs> Sounds very familiar. If you listen to the Peter Beater audio dispatches and you listen to them in chronological order, can you in real time hear a man slowly lose his mind? Uh, you know, oddly enough, if from from just listening to Beater's voice, he has this fascinating monotone from from the first audio letter all the way to the last one. So it's really hard to tell, you know, if 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 he's losing his mind or if he lost it before <laughs> the first audio letter. Um, I, I was shocked to discover that Peter Beater had a daughter, and her name is Petra Beater. <laughs> and she became a very successful photographer who worked for Rolling Stone, and, and, and she actually went on to photograph like concerts and, and following rock bands around and things like that. And, um, and I thought, w what an interview. I, I would love <laughs> to yeah. sit down with Petra Beater. He references her actually in some of the audio letters, he will reference his daughter who's like six at the time. Uh, so actually we would be roughly the same age. Uh, uh, so I, I would love to sit down with Petra Beater. You should interview her. <laughs> try, try to get a hold of Petra Beter and, and, and see if she will talk about her father uh, on the air. Because I, you know, she would have a different perspective of it. I mean, did he seem to be someone who was crazy, or did he seem to be someone who was totally, you know, stable and rational? Uh, you know, what what does she think about the organic robotoids and the the Battle of the Harvest Moon? Maybe we could try to set that up. Interesting. Is that still in print? The the audio letters. Or, or just the the Peter Beater uh, book. Well, they they only it never ex oh conspiracy against the dollar. Yeah, you mean. yeah. The, the, oh, maybe, yeah uh, maybe she's still getting some royalties, you know. I, I I don't think it's currently in print. It was published in hardcover in seventy one by I, I think it was like Random House or Scribner or something like that. It was a major publisher, and wow. uh, I you know I found a copy of it in the university library, I've never seen another copy. <laughs> we'll have and to see of course, if, uh, the audio letters didn't exist as, as, as a book. They only existed as these cassette tapes. We'll have to see if any of our publishing friends are interested in re-releasing Peter Beter. Yeah. So we, maybe Olaf Phillips or uh, maybe Daily Grail or somebody. 
He was the first. That's a good idea. Yeah, they should do that, and they should they should yeah. do they should transcribe all the audio letters. Oh, it would yeah. be this massive book, <laughs> like hey, you know, like the Necronomicon. But it'd be like it'd be you know thousands of pages of the the transcribed Peter Beater audio letters with. You could have like uh, the annotated version. That would be great. You could annotate yes. each audio letter with historical information. <laughs> historical information about the, uh, the the moon wars between the. So like he would he would literally like you would like I guess send him money and he would send you a tape every every week of the mail or something. Yeah. So it's kind of like. Yeah, it was like the 1970s version of a podcast. Yeah. You yeah. would you would you would subscribe to it, and then it's like our uh, you would get a little. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's exactly. And and uh, I've I've known people. I I knew a guy uh, who was uh, the archivist for Marshall McLuhan, oh, and cool. he subscribed to the Peter Beater letters, and he he would. Uh, I sat with him in the backyard of a friend of mine in Venice, California one day, and he regaled me for hours with what it was like getting the tapes in the mail. <laughs> and uh, it was kind of like, I, I almost got the sense it was like his version of a soap opera. I, I, you know, like, yeah. he, he would, and, and he, he was able to, <clears throat> this was in 2003 that I had this conversation, and he was able to, to reel off in exact order everything that had happened in the audio letters and the progression from one thing to the other. And he was able to re- like, remember all of it. <laughs> Holy shit. Wow. So I wanted to read this, uh, section. Like this is from part two. Um, now this is a appeal to heaven as a class action lawsuit and writ of habeas corpus. Absolutely. Yeah. Which is you're only getting like 10% of of the uh of the document there i'll just go on the people of god who are called by our name his ecclesia on behalf of all living beings on our planet earth and in our milky way galaxy that are in agreement and in service to god this also includes our ancestors our forefathers and our descendants appellants versus sophia lucifer et al asmodeus Corii, Azazel, Abraxas, Nog, Noit, Thelma, Thelma, Loki, Mog, Metatron, and all principalities, powers, the rulers of the darkness of this age, spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places, the cabal, negative non-terrestrials who are not in best interest of all life anywhere, also known as the enemies. And those are all my friends. <laughs> what? So... What is this about? I was a little confused about Metatron because I thought Metatron was like the voice of God. I don't know how Metatron actually fits. The evil Kabbalist, you know how it is. Yeah. Well, right. I I was thinking of writing him a a letter and, you know, telling him the names he left out. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Adam Sane. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you left out Adam Zane. You left out. uh, You left out Zenu. Uh, you know why? Why didn't they include Zenu? I I, I don't know. Um, yeah, right. I like how they include the Gnostic uh, Sophia. Yes, yeah, yes. she's she's first too. Like you know they want. <laughs> she's first. She's the worst. <laughs> they had to put her first. Yeah, it's that original sin problem. Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, and 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 I hope it doesn't apply to just all people named Sophia. That would be unfortunate. Uh, um, 
so I, I, I preface that that particular section. By the way, I should point out that I I signed up for Rick's uh, email uh, subscription. Uh, I, I created a Gmail account under the name Edgar Allan Poe, um, and it was E A Poe zero uh, eight because he was born in eighteen oh eight. Uh, at gmail.com. Uh, uh, and uh, so I signed up for it, and I, I'll get regular message from him, and it'll say, Dear Ed, uh, comma, and then they'll go on to try to sell me uh, his Christian Patriot, like, desanitizing cream. Yeah, 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 yeah. And all of these products that, that he has. Um, and he, he wants everyone to invest in gold, by the way. That's, that's another thing. Yeah, as usual. Of course. Of course. <laughs> uh, uh, and, and so... He sends that out, uh, and it was this 12-page, single-spaced document that essentially is like – right before that, that section is where I talk about them being uh, basically magic um, uh, magic practicing Christians, which sounds like um, a paradox. But uh, that, that, that letter there is essentially a kind of – their version of a sigil. Yeah, they're they're trying to enact their will uh, upon the universe, um, and that's why you know every every episode he would come on and he would say you know, Trump will be uh, uh, reelected. There's no question about it, um, and and that's why he was he would tell everyone who's listening, don't tune into the mainstream media. And he wasn't saying that because oh he's trying to protect his flock from. The ugly, uh, you know, false realities. No, no, no. Uh, it's, it's the idea is that if you don't expose yourself to their, to the enemy's timeline, it's less likely that that timeline will be manifested because you won't be directing your, you won't be giving it any of your energy. The psychic vampires in Hollywood and Washington D.C. will not be drawing upon your energy to create this timeline. So they, they so they really do think it's like. Yeah. Um, it's this battle, well, uh, this magical battle yeah. on the astral plane. I mean, you're a person who can definitely talk about it, that it, it appears to really be approaching uh, synchro mysticism and kind of like a down kind of thing. Uh, especially with, with the emphasis on Hollywood elites, you know, who are revealing the methods and, and uh, bewitching us with their sigils and films. And, uh, you know, of course, that's all got pretty anti-Semitic roots, and it's pretty weird. Yeah, yeah. If, you, if you've ever noticed, the people who are, like, really hardcore anti-Masons were also usually hardcore anti-Semites as well. Um, uh, and, I mean, that goes back to Mein Kampf. If you go pull out your copy of Mein Kampf, I know you have one sitting right there, signed. Uh, <laughs> like Indiana Jones. <laughs> he he had to change his name from Schickelgruber to Hitler because no one would say Heil Schickelgruber. That was not going to work. It wasn't going to fly. Um, uh, so if you pull and look in the index, you'll see you know look under Freemasons in the index for Mein Kampf, and you'll see what Hitler has to say about about the Freemasons. Mm -hmm. um, that's not well known. You know, Masons were also uh, persecuted during during the uh, the, the Holocaust because Hitler perceived them to be you know rival magicians, I guess. Um, right. uh, yeah. and, and and so yes, uh, Michael A. Hoffman, uh, um, who who wrote the the book uh, 
secret societies and psychological warfare, he, he coined the term uh, twilight language, mm-hmm. uh, which, which is, is essentially is a, uh, a deconstruction or an analysis of esoteric symbolism in popular media, usually film, but it can be other things as well, I suppose. It can be television. It can be, it can be books, you know, short stories, comic books. Uh, and I think I'm trying to remember, like, who's the first person I heard talk about that? Certainly, Jordan Maxwell uh, was an early uh, proponent of that, talking about that type of thing, though not using the phrase "twilight language." Um, and uh, William Cooper in his Mystery Babylon series. Yeah. The entire first episode of Mystery Babylon is basically an hour-long deconstruction yeah, of the esotericism <laughs> in, in 2001. Yeah, it's, it's, it's an early version of that. Uh, and that- What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Now we've had recently, you know, books, um, Esoteric Hollywood, um, which I think Trine Day published. Trine Day published Cryptoscatology, my first book. And then there's a guy named Robert W. Sullivan, who yep. I think you've had on the show. Oh, yeah, we've had who's, him. Who is also, mm-hmm. he's, he's a, uh, oddly, oddly enough, he's a 32nd degree Mason. Yep. I am too. His name's Robert. My name is Robert. His middle name ish, initial is W, and my uh, middle initial, uh, initial is W. And also he went... He became a 32nd degree Scottish Rite Mason around the same time I did, but I, I've never met him, uh, though. But uh, he seems to have a, a firm grasp, uh, knowledge of the, of the, um, of the symbolism. Oh yeah, I've read I've read a couple of his books. I mean, he's great. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and 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 in fact, I've uh, I've been um, working on a book for a while that I, I finally finished called Hollywood Haunts the World. Uh, an investigation into the cinema of occulted taboos, and uh, it's it's somewhat. It doesn't. Uh, I didn't want to reinvent the wheel. Uh, it it goes into some of the symbolism in some of the films. There's one chapter that's focused on what I call Gnostic cinema uh, uh, films, particularly of, of recent vintage, uh, that are all about sort of reality bending films or films in which the characters do not know if they're. In, in, in the real world, or are they in some sort of simulated 
situation. Uh, and so I begin the book in, ni- in 1921 with the film called The Phantom Carriage uh, and go all the way to 2021. And at the, at the moment, the book ends with uh, WandaVision, technically a television show, but it's it's actually really like a nine hour long film, uh, and 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 also I talk early, even earlier films, silent films like Sherlock Jr., the Buster Keaton film, which 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 sort of deals with these themes in its own way. Uh, so it covers a hundred years, nineteen twenty one to twenty twenty one, and uh, uh, so you know, I think it's totally valid to discuss the presence, uh, the influence. Uh, various esoteric uh, secret societies, theologies yeah. on film. Uh, certainly, sure. early writers uh, in the early 1900s and the late 1800s, like Jules Verne and, and Edgar Rice Burroughs, uh, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, Bram Stoker, um, H. Ryder Haggard, all these people, you find the Masonic symbolism and the hermetic symbolism and the Gnosticism in their books. Uh, Edgar Rice Burroughs was very much into theosophy. And uh, if you read his, his Barsoom novels, uh, the, the, his Mars, John Carter of Mars books, Mars seems all, an awful lot like Atlantis as described by Blavatsky. Um, uh, L. Frank Baum was, was hugely into theosophy. And he used to, when he lived in Chicago, would take his family during the winter out to San Diego, where there was a very large theosophical community there. Uh, and in fact, uh, the Hotel uh, Coronado in San Diego was the basis for the Emerald City. Uh, really? And okay. eventually, L. Frank Baum moved to California. In fact, he created a, he had a house in Los Angeles he called Ozcott um, and wrote many of the Oz books in L.A., uh, so in a way, the Oz books are are L.A. novels. Uh, I guess you could say the later ones. Well, um, and uh, he often would 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 drive from his home in L.A. up uh, up north to beyond Santa Barbara to a town called Summerland. Uh, Summerland in Theosophy is the the world where uh, children go when they die. Uh, they 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 go to this un, un um, kind of a paradisical realm, astral realm. Um, and uh, some believe that Oz is somewhat based on Summerland, uh, in other words, the concept of Summerland in, in mm. theosophy. And the whole, uh, there's very interesting uh, symbols in terms of uh, what Dorothy represents, the Tin Woodsman, the lion. Uh, they all represent these sort of like five layers of being that Blavatsky talks about in theosophy. Uh, and so you see a lot of this um, leaking out uh, into the popular uh, literature at the time that the people reading it wouldn't have known that this is where this stuff is coming from. And so that's a completely valid um, realm of, of research. I think where I would differ with with uh, Renee, with Mr. Uh, Renee and with Jean is that they see this as a completely negative thing. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I don't. I think that's a nice segue to your fiction book, Bella Lugosi's Dead, which I read over the weekend and thoroughly enjoyed. Uh, just finished it today. And, um, you know, you have a section in there where a couple of characters encounter Manly P. Hall. 
And oh, yeah. this this whole idea of like Manly P. Hall, Bella Lugosi, they knew each other, they were friends. And this whole idea that you put into the the character of Manly P. Hall, and I believe this is something that probably is gonna show is gonna show up in your other book, is that he had a lot of influence. He was trying to influence some of the horror movies of the time. And there's also this idea that Dracula was really like kind of the first supernatural horror film. Before that, horror films would be explained as some kind of like natural phenomenon that was going on that had to be explained. But that, you know, some of these themes, esoteric themes are coming in because of Manly P. Hall's influence in L.A. Oh, yeah, yeah. That, that was a fun uh, scene to write. Um, of course, Bram Stoker was tied in with the Order of the Golden Dawn and and right. Freemasonry. So so you, some of that some of that symbolism is there in the original in the source material. Um before Dracula, Todd Browning's Dracula in 1931, the idea uh the common wisdom in Hollywood is that people would not accept a fully supernatural film. They just wouldn't accept it uh or it would be even maybe considered sacrilegious in some way. Mm-hmm. And so if you had horror themes like Phantom of the Opera, it's, it's a horror movie, but the Phantom is not supernatural. Mm-hmm. Uh, He's just a deformed guy. Yeah. Right. And, uh, and the cat and the canary, uh, the bat, it's almost like this where there seem to be supernatural things happening, but by the end it's revealed that it's actually not supernatural. You know, early like Scooby-Doo uh, kind of thing. Uh, and uh, the Manly B. Hall section was fun to write, I'm a Mason myself, so I've read a bunch of Manly P. Hall books. Hall was Lugosi's best friend for many years. Uh, Lugosi was one of the first people to donate to fund the PRS, the the Philosophical Research Society, which is this alabaster temple that Manly P. Hall built uh, in L.A. in the shadow of the Griffith Observatory. I've been to the PRS many times. I've seen lectures there. Next time I'm in LA, if that happens, you're taking me there. I want, I want, I want to see that. Yeah, yeah definitely a, a destination spot. Yes, uh, and Manly P. Hall himself said that he chose LA as the spot. Uh, you know, in the 20s, you know, before Hollywood becomes Hollywood, really. Um, um, there, there, there was some question as to where the the center of the entertainment world would be. At one point, in fact, they, um, a lot of the early silent films were based here in, in Long Beach, where where I live. Uh, at, that, at one point, there was uh, it looked as if that would be the hub, you know. But it moved over uh, into L.A. Uh, so uh, Lugosi helps fund uh, the PRS even before. Even before he gets the role as Dracula, I, bu- I believe he knew Manly P. Hall before he even became uh, Dracula. You know, got, he got the role in, in the, in the uh, late 20s. Uh, and Manly P. Hall publishes uh, The Secret Teachings of All Ages in 1928 or 27. And in fact, I was uh, the, the brief period of time where I was, I was at once the assistant librarian at the Scottish Rite in uh, Long Beach, uh, and they had in the library this first edition of the Secret Teachings of All Ages when it was when it had its original title, 
uh, originally had a very long title. Uh, and it's massive, like bigger than the biggest Tosh in art book you've seen in this giant wooden slipcase. And when you open it up, you, you would see on the inside the list of all the people who donated. There were all these uh, rich patrons with an interest in the esoteric who had given Hall the money to produce this book. Uh, early Kickstarter. Um, so, so later on, when Lugosi became poor uh, and you know, his wife Lillian left him for the actor uh, Brian Dunleavy, uh, who science fiction fans will know as the Professor Quatermass in the Quatermass experiment. Uh, after his wife had left him uh, and he was very, pretty much destitute uh, and addicted to heroin, uh, Manly Behal repaid those early favors uh, by buying Lugosi groceries. Uh, he even officiated at Lugosi's last uh, marriage, uh, last wedding. He He married uh, Lugosi to his final wife, Hope. Uh, so they knew each other for, for decades. And uh, Mike Kompner is a fellow who created a magazine called Cult Movies Magazine uh, in the late 80s. And I've, I've talked to, to uh, Mike Kompner several times over the phone. He's a fascinating guy. And uh, he was part of that, that kind of zine DIY zine culture of the 80s, which is partly what the book is about, Bela Lugosi's Dead. There's two parallel timelines going on there. There's a story set in the distant past. There's also a storyline set in Los Angeles in the 80s. So it's partly, the book's partly like a love song to the universal horror films of the 30s and 40s. And then on the other hand, it's also a love song to the kind of zine culture, DIY culture of the, of the 1980s, which I was somewhat partly involved in. I you know, contributed articles to Paranoia Magazine and Steam Shovel Press, uh, edited by Ken Thomas. In fact, I was just recently reading Adam Gorightly's book, uh, uh, Saucers, uh, Spooks, and Kooks, and he, right. Gorightly in there talks about how he and his friends sort of wax nostalgic about the the, the zine uh, days. Yeah, Greg Bishop was involved with all that too. Yeah. With the Excluded Middle, which was yeah. a great uh, magazine. And so Kopner created the zine called Cult Movies. And the, the slogan of the, of the magazine was, We Remember Forgotten Films. Uh, and he started the magazine, this is before Ed Wood, you know, before the film Ed Wood by Tim Burton, which kind of helps uh, resurrect uh, some of this stuff. But that's why this book uh, is, in fact, uh, dedicated to uh, dedicated to forgotten films and forgotten people. Uh, and so Cult Movies Magazine really fascinated me uh, um, because it kind of uh, it would analyze or shine a spotlight, not just on obscure high art European films, but also on bottom of the barrel, like pornographic films. And, and they didn't, there was no judgment there. Uh, they treated it all exactly the same. Uh, and so I was kind of fascinated by that entire attitude that the magazine had. So there was one particular, and Rambuna magazine, and there's a magazine, the main character, Mike, creates a magazine called Rambuna uh, in the novel, which is somewhat based on cult movies magazine. Uh, so Mike Kopner, he actually met Manly P. Hall. He he knew that there was this connection between Lugosi and Manly P. Hall. So he started going to the Philosophical Research Society when Manly P. Hall was still lecturing. Manly P. Hall lived until, I think, the age of 91. Um, and he died in the early 90s. So uh, one day, Kopner uh, went there with a photograph that he, he had uh, from the um, 
It was a signed photo of Lugosi and Manly P. Hall on the set of Black Friday, which was a film that Universal did in 1940. Uh, and it was, a, it was this publicity stunt that they had done where uh, Manly, Manly P. Hall supposedly hypnotized Lugosi on set in order to perform. Uh, Lugosi was to perform in the scene where he was supposedly suffocating uh, in a closet. And so he hypnotized Lugosi to think he was suffocating, supposedly. Um, and uh, uh, Hall told Kopner that Lugosi was um, very concerned that Manly B. Hall would hypnotize him into not wanting to smoke cigars anymore. Like, that was his main concern. Like, do, please do not do that. Um, uh, so after the lecture, Kopner uh, shows Hall the photo of him and Lugosi, and Manly B. Hall looked at it, and he said, Oh, my old friend, Bela. And he kind of looked at it with this sparkle in his eyes, and it took him a few seconds to notice himself in the photo. It took about like 30 seconds, and then he said, oh, and there I am, uh, even though they were like right next to each other. Uh, and so Kopner had a cold conversation with Hall and wrote about it in Cult Movies magazine. So I was able to draw a little from that, and I had to ask myself how I was going to write Manly P. Hall's character convincingly. And I've heard like a bunch of hall lectures over the years but that's not quite the same thing as interacting with him in three dimensions so i was trying to figure out how i could write his character in a believable way uh and so i for some reason i suddenly realized oh wait a minute um stephen heller who's the the bishop of the gnostic church in los angeles i interviewed him for paranoia magazine uh, and I, I interviewed him in, in his apartment. He lives in the in the shadow of the Hollywood sign. Uh, and I've seen many lectures by Heller. In fact, I've seen lectures by him at the in the lecture hall in the Philosophical Research Society, where Heller will sit in the chair, the same exact chair that Manly P. Hall sat in. And Heller will sit there, and he will deliver lectures in a very similar way as Hall, in the sense that he'll sit there for two hours with no notes. And talked for you know uh, for, for just for hours about some strange esoteric subject, never never looking down at his notes or anything, uh, and that's how Manly P. Hall would do it. Um, and I realized that Heller, who was sort of Manly P. Hall, was Heller's mentor uh, and teacher. That Heller had kind of picked up some of Manly P. Hall's mannerisms, his way of lecturing and speaking, uh, and so. I realized um, that that uh, I could kind of base the character of Manly P. Hall on Stephen Heller, and that will be like a sort of replacement or analog for the fact that I never met Manly P. Hall himself. So once I latched onto that, and I, I imagined the Hall character speaking like Heller, uh, the character kind of came to life uh, in in my mind. So that's a favorite scene of mine, and uh, there's a scene, it's right in the middle of the book, when the main characters meet Manly P. Hall uh, at the Philosophical Research Society, and Hall tells them about his experiences with Lugosi. And so, uh, not many people know this, but Manly P. Hall wrote a sequel to Dracula that uh, Lugosi and Hall uh, pitched to Universal Studios in the late 30s. Uh, early 40s. Uh, my friend, Gary Rhodes, uh, who teaches film at the University of Florida, he we, we wrote the book Oligosi and the Monogram Nine together in, in 2019, which is nonfiction. Um, the, um, 
Gary recently published a book called Scripts from the Crypt, Son of Dracula. Uh, and he, in that book, in the back, he published this long-lost manuscript he found, uh, which is Hall's outline for this Dracula sequel that Lugosi wanted to do. And when you read it, it's clear that Hall based his idea of the vampire on the actual esoteric notion of the vampire that he writes about in The Secret Teachings of All Ages, uh, where the vampire is sort of more of a psychic vampire or an immortal spirit, more like like a walk-in. And um, so, so both Lugosi and Hall had an interest in the actual esoteric roots of these things. And according to Lugosi's son, who I've, I've met, uh, Lugosi had an, an extensive uh, library of occult books uh, dealing with reincarnation and astrology and similar topics. Uh, and so not only did Lugosi help fund the, the PRS before he was ever cast as Dracula, uh, so obviously this indicates that like, this interest was sort of already in his DNA, that uh, perhaps it was fated for Lugosi to play uh, Dracula. But uh, Hall also pitched uh, ideas to other studios, like Warner Brothers, and he pitched a film called The Mysterious Abbey, uh, where Lugosi would have played some sort of cleric who goes around solving supernatural crimes, like a, like a supernatural Father Brown, the G.K. Chesterton character. And, uh, and then he, uh, Hall pitched another film, the Warner Brothers, called The Emperor of Atlantis, where Lugosi uh, was to have starred in the title role. This stuff would have been amazing. Oh, yeah. I, I mean, imagine. I, I suspect Hall probably would have based it somewhat on the Blavatsky, you know, vision of Atlantis. Oh, sure. Uh, yeah. which, which fascinated other, you know, there, Arthur Conan Doyle, you know, who's, who we kind of associate with the ultimate symbol of, of rationality and logic, Sherlock Holmes. Doyle was completely into the supernatural and the occult in his personal life and wrote uh, a book called The Maricot Deep, uh, which is all about Atlantis and very, it's really a theosophical tract. <laughs> you know, at a certain point, the book kind of abandons the plot and becomes a kind of like teaching tool to teach the reader about theosophy. Um, so, so this aspect of Hall's career is not well known. Uh, and he actually did write films that were produced. Uh, he wrote a film called When Were You Born? Uh, which features an Asian female uh, in the starring role as a detective who solves crimes using astrology. Uh, and it starred Anna May Wong. Uh, and um, Manly P. Hall is actually in the film playing himself he, in this prologue. He's, he's sitting at his desk, expounding on the virtues of astrology, talking to the audience. Uh, you can actually find this film uh, if you search around for it. It still exists. Uh, so, you know, most people know Manly B. Hall, if they know him at all, they would know him from having written The Secret Destiny of America and The Secret Teachings of All Ages. His nonfiction is about the occult, the hermetic, Masonic mysteries, etc. cetera. Uh, but um, when you study his relationship with Lugosi, it's clear that, that um, he was interested in writing fictional films. And uh, the fact that he pitched these, these Lugosi films that were never made, he wrote this film, When Were You Born? He published a collection of short stories that you can still buy called Shadow Forms, which I, I highly recommend. It's a, it's a collection of occult-themed stories that he wrote for pulp magazines in the 1920s. And the book begins with an introduction by Hall 
where he says that he briefly flirted with the notion that maybe fiction would be a way, uh, a conduit of getting important esoteric ideas out to the masses in, in a way that they would accept and not reject it outright. Uh, so I, th- you know, given that comment that he makes in the introduction to that collection of stories, and then uh, when you look at the projects he was pitching to Hollywood and those projects that, that were actually made, like When Were You Born, I get the sense that Hall was thinking that maybe uh, these films would be a way of of not indoctrinating, but teaching people these sort of esoteric mysteries in a way that they would accept, in, in a way that were, they would accept these taboo ideas if it was wrapped up in a story. Uh, and so in that sense, Lugosi is kind of like a nexus point for a lot of the things I'm interested in. Uh, I mean, the, the metaphysical level with the, the Manly P. Hall connection and the whole the golden age of, of Hollywood, uh, which I've, I've written about film for like Video Watchdog magazine and the New York Review of Science Fiction and and the horror and dark fantasy aspect of it, because, of course, Lugosi is associated with those genres, uh, which I've written those types of stories. Uh, and then also there's the there's the level of uh, which is extremely not not well known at all about Lugosi is the whole connection to government conspiracies, surveillance, and harassment, which is the subject matter of Camellio, of course, my, uh, my, my third book. But uh, um, Lugosi was monitored for years by the OSS, uh, which was the forerunner of the CIA. What? Because he was Hungarian? <laughs> well, that, that, uh, there's, there's, uh, that, that is part of it. Um, Gary Rhodes, who, who I wrote the, the Monogram 9 book with, uh, he wrote a book um, called Bella Gosi in Person. He co-wrote it with Bill Kaffenberger. It was published in 2015. And chapter 12 of that book is called Horror Noir. And, uh, I, uh, you know, conspiracy mavens um, and people, you know, if you've got interest in the unconstitutional surveillance and harassment of, of U.S. citizens, check out that chapter. There's a lot of information in there that was not previously known. Uh, the chapter is over 50 pages long. It's, it's really in-depth. And so while in Hungary, uh, as a young man, uh, Lugosi got involved in unions uh, and the unionization of actors. Uh, and so he becomes involved in this communist takeover of Hungary after World War I wow. around like 1919. Yeah. And uh, they they appoint him. The new communist government appoints him as the the cabinet secretary in charge of the arts. And so, uh, but the, this communist takeover only lasts for a few months. So Lugosi has to like get the hell out of Dodge to avoid being executed <laughs> or, or thrown in jail. Uh, so he flees to Germany, where he gets involved in uh, silent cinema. And he ends up uh, working with F.W. Murnau, who directed Nosferatu, and and Conrad Veidt, who later appears, you know, in, in Casablanca. And um, he played the the man who laughs, which is a classic horror silent film. So he works with F.W. Murnau and Conrad Veidt on a version of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Uh, but that film is sadly lost. You know, that this is sort of like on the level of London after midnight uh, in terms of lost films. The idea that Conrad Veidt, F.W. Murnau, and Bela Lugosi all collaborated on a film 
based on Robert Louis Stevenson's Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, it's kind of like this orgasmic moment. Didn't he also work with Fritz Lang too? Oh, oh yes, yes, yes. In in early uh, the, in the silent cinema when he was in Germany, yeah. Uh, and so after that period, he flees to America and uh, he gets involved in the New York theater and works his way up to Broadway where he portrays Dracula for the first time. So as Lugosi's star is is rising, there are these fellow Hungarian actors in New York who know about Lugosi's communist past, and they they try to do him dirt by snitching him out to the INS. This is during the first Red Scare, uh, uh, because we think of the Red Scare as being McCarthy, the late forties, early fifties, but in fact, it was an earlier Red Scare as well. Right after World War One. Yep. Right, right. So, uh, whenever Lugosi is interviewed by the press, he he often mentions that he fled, he had to flee Hungary, but he implies he had to leave when the communists took over, which is the exact opposite <laughs> of what happened. Right. So, so he joins the Democratic Party in America, and he's he's one of the founding members of the Screen Actors Guild, along with Boris Karloff, which was a kind of revolutionary act at the time. I mean, the actors who formed the Screen Actors Guild had to meet in secret. They would park blocks away from the meeting place because <laughs> they were afraid that representatives of the studio, you know, like the, the Pinkerton boys would be following them to the meeting place. Wow. Um, so is one of the earliest members of the, uh, a founding member of the, of the Screen Actors Guild. And, um, uh, so he continues to be kind of like a left-leaning, politically active actor, even in the in the states. And during World War II, he becomes the honorary president of this political organization called uh, the Hungarian American Council for Democracy, uh, which is a communist front. Uh, though Lugosi may not have known that because he was just a figurehead who, who would go around making speeches urging Hungary to fight fascism and to join the Allies. So uh, the OSS begins surveilling um, Lugosi at that point. And Gary, Gary Rhodes, found stacks and stacks of um, Lugosi's OSS files in the National Archives. Um, and in the documents, the OSS call this this council that he was a part of, the Hungarian-American Council for Democracy, in the files, they, they call it the Dracula Council wow. uh, because of Lugosi's involvement. So it's really weird when you read the documents, they're on, you know, they're on these official-looking manual typewriters, and it, it'll say, you know, the Dracula Council did this today. Um, it, it's, I mean, I assume it was meant half humorously, but it's also kind of weird at the same time. Yeah, the, the Wolfman and Frankenstein, they're all hanging out together. And Yes, you, you imagine, you know, Dracula holding court at this long table in some, in some castle somewhere, and the, and the Wolfman is there, and the Wolfman has like a communist, you know, like hammer and sickle on, 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 his, uh, on his chest. Uh, so, so the OSS, they watch Lugosi like a hawk, and after World War II, the FBI begins surveilling him as well. Uh, and at one point, Jagger Hoover actually um, contemplates taking his citizenship away because of his communist ties. Yeah, they, they, did, similar, they did similar things to Chaplin, too. Oh, yes, and, and yeah. Chaplin had to, had to leave yeah. uh, eventually and, and went to, to England and did his last films uh, abroad. 
Um, uh, so the FBI, they continue watching Lugosi all the way through to at least 1954. That's where the files end. And then behind uh, Lugosi's back, they would go around asking these probing questions about him and his activities. And so what wonders if there wasn't a chilling effect there? You know, uh, does that, is that why um, he is not able to land uh, any wow. film roles near the end of his life? Uh, because mm-hmm. there's a mysterious thing that happens in his career. He'll, he'll hit a successful film like The Devil Bat in 1940, which was made by PRC, which was a bottom of the barrel, uh, you know, making only B, C films. Uh, nonetheless, it, it made a lot of money for them because they then did a sequel called The Devil Bat's Daughter. But Lugosi's not in the sequel, you know. And then in 1948, uh, he does Abbott Costello Meet Frankenstein, which was one of the huge successes of that year. It was one of the major, like, blockbuster films of 1948, and yet he never works for Universal again. He never works with Abbott Costello again. And so one wonders, you know, if, if you're a producer and you get a visit from G-Men, <laughs> and say, hey, is that Lugosi? Is he... Yeah, have you heard he's a communist? Is that true? You know, you might think twice about hiring him again when you could hire someone else who is not being investigated by uh, the FBI. In fact, there's a story that uh, Gary, in one of the files, uh, Lugosi was in Las Vegas doing something called the Lugosi Review, which was oddly enough set up for him by Ed Wood. Um, a lot of people accuse Ed Wood of like um, exploiting Lugosi near the end of his life, but it really does seem as if Edward went out of his way to get him work, you know, beyond just being in his own films. So he set up this Lugosi review in Las Vegas, uh, and it was, it lasted for six weeks. Um, and apparently health problems, it would have continued longer, but he was suffering from a lot of health problems due to his heroin addiction. And there's a letter in the file from a doctor in Las Vegas uh, who wrote a letter to the FBI saying, Mr. Lugosi came to me asking, you know, for heroin, for opioids. And like, this is Lugosi's luck. He finds the one doctor in Las Vegas who's not a Dr. Feelgood. You know, yeah. like the one guy in Vegas who's not willing to just sell you something under the table. <laughs> so, so the doctor rats him out to the FBI and says, this guy is, you know, trying to buy drugs illegally from me. Uh, uh, and so... Um, so, it, but now, the, of course, the irony of all this. Uh, oh, also, Ed Wood tried to sell a, a Bell Lugosi comic book to DC Comics, which I think is fascinating. Uh, there's some alternate universe where there was a, a Bell Lugosi comic book published by DC in the 1950s. Vampira would have had to have been a character. I I assume Lugosi would have been like a like a host, you know, like kind of like a, a broad yeah. Serling, you know, you know, uh, introducing you to the story. Um, so, you know, that's one of the many projects that would try to get off the, uh, off the ground. Uh, but in terms of, um, my other interests in terms of, uh, you know, illegal unconstitutional surveillance of us citizens, um, it's ironic, uh, that at the same time, uh, if you read a book called who financed Hitler by James and Suzanne Poole, who were historians, they were World War II historians, um, they talk in there about how American industrialists like Henry Ford uh, were overtly in support of Hitler uh, and uh, other, in, in fact, Mein Kampf, uh, that's the only American Hitler praises is Henry Ford. Right. And Henry Ford 
wrote something in praise of Hitler, and then in exchange in Mein Kampf, Hitler says he says something like Henry Ford, you know, the only American who knows what's going on, or something like that. Yep, yep. Because you got a, whenever you bought a car from Henry Ford, you got a copy of the International Jew that was just there for you. <laughs> yeah, it was in the glove compartment. Um, the uh, the so so at the same time that there were there were all these American industrialists who were supporting Hitler financially. And in fact, supposedly Franklin Roosevelt actually wanted to do a kind of Nuremberg trial in the United States for these for these uh, industrialists who were supporting the Nazis during the war. But Roosevelt died prematurely, and that didn't happen. Uh, so the FBI and the OSS didn't care, you know, about about Henry Ford oh, <laughs> or these not. industrialists who were who were funding uh, the Nazis and Hitler, but they had time to follow Bill Lugosi around and <laughs> yeah. to, to ask if he was trying to buy op- opioids and priorities. The, the question that I want to know is, did Manly P. Hall and Ed Wood ever meet each other? Oh, now that's a good question. Yes. Uh, I would love to know. Did, did Ed, w- well, I have uh, also, you know, Manly P. Hall was a, was a 33rd degree Freemason, uh, but he was an honorary Mason. Uh, in other words, he didn't have to go through the first through thirty second degrees. He just jumped right to the thirty third um, because the Masons would often invite Manly P. Hall to come lecture to them about their symbolism, mm-hmm. even though Hall was not a Mason. So I think somebody at some point just decided, ah, he knows everything anyway. Just make him a thirty third degree Freemason. Ronald Reagan as well was an honorary Mason. Just go from Cowan to thirty third degree all in one. Stuff, right? Oh, right, just right, exactly. <laughs> and, and so I, I, you know, I always wondered, well, was Lugosi a Mason? Uh, since his friend Manly P. Hall was, but uh, there's no evidence of that. And 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 Bell Lugosi was something of a perceived himself as something of, of a loner or a lone wolf. He did not network in Hollywood very well. He did not. He was not a joiner. No, and 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 he would, you know, he didn't go to Hollywood parties. He would throw his own parties. He would blow a whole paycheck on a giant party that would last, you know, all night, and then he'd have to go. Well, I get, I gotta go find another movie role to pay for the party I had last night. But those are mainly like his his friends in the Hungarian community in in L.A. He didn't really hobnob with the other Hollywood actors, which maybe that had something to do with not getting uh, too many roles later on as well. Uh, so uh, there's no evidence of Lugosi being a Mason, but certainly based on uh, what his son has said, it's clear based on the books that were in his library that he actually did have an active interest in these kind of uh, mm. hermetic topics, whether that be astrology or reincarnation, etc. Wow. Very interesting stuff, Robert. Um, the book is great. I highly recommend it. I mean, it's kind of, uh, you, you've got two different storylines, and I, I couldn't help but think that this is the beginning of a series. Oh well, uh, the um, in the sense that uh, uh, there there is there is so there's two there's two storylines going on, and at first the reader will not understand what the connection is between the two. So the the one storyline is in 1980s Los Angeles, which is written in a very sort of spare, realistic style, and then the other storyline that's going on in the distant past is written in a very different style, a kind of over the top high octane pulp, uh, kind of style. And that involves a storyline all about the master of the Freemasons, uh, which is, uh, the mummy 
which makes sense. You know, the mummy from the actual mummy films is the head of the Freemasons, um, which makes sense on, on many different levels. Uh, and, uh, and, and, uh, and of course the, the, the Wolfman is involved and Dracula and Frankenstein's monster. And also, uh, Frank, the Frankenstein's, uh, the brain of the monster has been transplanted into Igor and Igor's brain has been transplanted into the monster. So the monster in Igor's body is initiated into the Freemason. Uh, um, with the with the mummy officiating, and I think I got that idea from uh, when I go to any Blue Lodge. There's always a painting that's in every Blue Lodge, and it's a painting of George Washington standing regally with a, a Masonic apron around him, and it's the same painting. And every time I see it, I always hallucinate that it's the Frankenstein monster wearing the Masonic <laughs> apron, and like I desperately want to see that. I wish I could paint because I would paint that painting and then go in at night take down the George Washington painting and then hang up the Frankenstein monster one and then see how long it takes anyone to notice. Um, <laughs> I, I, I think that that's where I got the idea of the Frankenstein monster being initiated uh, into the Freemasons. So you, you experience a, a, a Masonic initiation by proxy through the Frankenstein monsters experiences. Uh, you not let any, you not let any secrets out, are you? No, no. Not, not going to end up like Captain Morgan. Right? No, 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 no. I was very careful. I, I ran it by the committee first. It's <laughs> good. I, but I should also mention that the book received an endorsement, a blurb from uh, Alan Moore, uh, yeah, cool. the, uh, uh, you know, comic book writer and ceremonial magician, both. Uh, and I, uh, and the way that came that came about was. Um, I knew from having read a lot of his stuff, and I, I discovered Alan Moore's writing when I was like 14. Uh, and I read Watchmen number one when it came out, and it kind of like was a major WTF moment and, and, and blew the back of my skull apart. Swamp Thing was very formative to me, so yeah. Oh, absolutely. In fact, that was yeah. the first. I, there was a comic book that I was obsessed with called Mr. Monster by Michael T. Gilbert. And Mr. Monster was a guy in a red and blue costume with a skull on his chest, and he had 45s on his belt, on his, in his holster, and he would go out and fight monsters. And in issue number three, there was a story called The Riddle of the Recalcitrant Refuse, where Mr. Monster fought this glob of sentient garbage. Uh, and it was written by Alan Moore, uh, and the cover was drawn by Steve Bissett, uh, with, with whom he collaborated on The Swamp Thing. Right. stories. And in the back, there was an essay by Michael T. Gilbert saying the best writer in comic books is Alan Moore. If you're not reading Swamp Thing, you're missing out. So I went and I bought the most recent issue at that time, which was the issue where Swamp Thing uh, interacts with this house that's clearly based on the uh, the Winchester mansion, yes, uh, where the souls of all the people who have been killed by the Winchester guns over the years yeah. are haunting right. this house. Right. And uh, Swamp Thing has to deal with that. Was the first issue I bought, and then I, I, I bought it. I got the back issues, and then I, I continued following Alan. Where is that? That's uh, San Jose, right? That is, yeah. Not, yeah. That, in fact, San Jose in the same place where the Rosicrucian Temple is, uh, where they have a lot of Egyptian yes. mummies, actually Egyptian mummies, in the Rosicrucian Temple. They are in San Jose. So if you come to San Jose, you can come visit the Winchester Mansion. 
get attacked by the ghosts of the people who were killed by the Winchester rifle, and then go over to the Rosicrucian temple and see the Egyptian mummies and get attacked by them. <laughs> or, vi- or vice versa, whichever order you want to do it in. Um, and uh, uh, so I, I, there's various clues in Alan Moore's writing in um, B for Vendetta, Cinema Purgatorio, Leave Extraordinary Gentlemen, and other stories, where I could tell that he was a major Lugosi fan so I knew that he had been following my the Salon series. I knew that he had read the Salon series um, about QAnon. So I took a chance and I arranged to have a copy of Bill Lugosi's Dead sent to him to his home in England. And to my surprise, not only did he read the book, but and not only did he read it very quickly, but he also volunteered to uh, to give it a, a, a blurb. And the blurb reads. Uh, blending intertextual rampage through the horror movie canon with engrossing noir mystery and a backdrop of Hollywood esoterica, Robert Guppy serves up an intoxicating pulp cocktail that will leave you wanting more, a crepuscular treasure from a fascinating author. I, I, sh- when I, I showed this to my wife. You, you may not know, but Alan Moore is kind of like the J.D. Salinger of comic books. Maybe not to that extent, but he doesn't give out a lot of blurbs. Let's put it that way. So I showed this to my wife, and she goes, that's amazing. She goes, you know, a lot of people may not believe that Alan Moore wrote it. And I go, well, when they hit the word crepuscular, they'll know that Alan Moore wrote it. Because who else would come up with the word crepuscular for a blurb? Crepuscular yeah. means nocturnal. You know, since you're in now, uh, once you tell, tell Alan Moore that you got a couple of guys to do a podcast, because like, that would be a dream guest for me. Oh, that would be amazing. There's a lot I would love to ask that man. Particularly if you focused entirely on the ceremonial magic aspect. Uh, You know, because he's probably been asked questions about Watchmen and V for Vendetta ad nauseum. Mm -hmm. Uh, But not a lot of people focus on... uh, In fact, you know, I really recommend his series Promethea, which is his study of the Kabbalah. I've I've read that, yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. It's, really I, it, it, it's incredible. It really yeah. is, and, and 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 it's in a way it's sort of similar to what we were discussing with Manly P. Hall using popular fiction to get out some of these ideas. It's it's this analysis uh, of of the Kabbalah, but in in the form of a superhero metaphysical superhero story, uh, and it's extremely impressive. I, I I highly highly recommend it. Well, I was just going to say thank you. I mean, this has been a great episode. I'm glad that you came on. We we covered a whole wide gamut of topics tonight. I always, yeah, <laughs> I always enjoy talking to you. I once spent four hours with you, so I could probably spend a lot of time talking about all this stuff. But uh, we're going to do a little Patreon uh, segment with you as well, so we're keeping you around. But uh, I wanted to thank you for coming on. Where can people find uh, Bella Lugosi's Dead? Uh, these articles that you've just written, any of your books, really. Okay, so the QAnon series, uh, you can find the five-part original QAnon series on Salon. If, I, I get, if you just Google Robert Guppy Salon, you'll find it. The new Evergreen Review series, uh, just go to Evergreen Review, uh, and, and you'll find that. And part, so, so part three should be up maybe tomorrow, very soon, certainly, the part three and part four. Bell Legosi's Dead. You can buy through Amazon. Now, I should also mention, at least briefly, that in the same week that I published Bell Lugosi's Dead, I, I had another book come out that same week, which was completely synchronistic. Uh, it was not planned because it's two different publishers. Uh, but the other book is called Widow of the Amputation and Other Weird Crimes. 
It's a collection of four novellas. And the, and the, the main novella, the title story, Widow of the Amputation, is all about Charles Manson busting out of prison and then going to the California Bank and Trust Building in Torrance, California, and stealing the severed head of Mary Magdalene out of a refrigerator there, <laughs> and then going on a road trip with her to Death Valley. Uh, and uh, if, you, if, you're, if you've read The Family by Ed Sanders, or The Shadow over Santa Susanna by Adam Gorightly, yes, or, the, or, yes, or the book Chaos by Tim O'Neill, all those books about Manson, there's a similar theme and that is Manson being a kind of a, a pawn in a, in a greater game. Uh, and that's essentially what this what Widow of the Amputation uh, examines in kind of phantasmagorical terms. Uh, so, uh, so those are the, my two latest books, Bell Lugosi's Dead and Widow of the Amputation, which was published by uh, Eraserhead Press. And you can ho- buy both of them through Amazon. When does the Hollywood book come out? Oh, Hollywood Haunts the World? Yeah. Uh, okay, so I just finished writing it. Uh, I'm talking to a publisher right now. I don't have. There's nothing definite yet, but uh, okay. I suspect I will have news about it sooner than later. Okay. Cool. Yeah, because I definitely want to have you back on for that. That's that's going to be. And there will be a book version of the QAnon. Oh, okay. Nice. Okay. You 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 are really prolific these days. Nice. All right, Robert, we're going to close the show out here. Uh, so just to remind everybody, uh, Strange Realities Conference tickets are available. They are up. The website looks great. You can see everybody that is speaking there. Um, Robert, hopefully next year we'll get you here to Nashville. That I think that that's kind of in my mind right now. So, But uh, strangerealitiesconference.com, you guys can purchase tickets there. It is $70 to come here to, if you want to be part of the live audience three in Nashville. Days. And th- for three days, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. And then also we are doing the online-only portion, which is $30. So get your tickets as soon as possible, people. We really want to see you there either virtually or in Nashville at SIR. So, and uh, as always, check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash conspiranormal, where you will be able to hear uh, this patron episode we're about to record with Mr. Guffey. Mm-hmm. Exactly. All right, guys. I want to thank you so very much. Uh, next week, David Metcalf is going to come back and uh, we're going to talk about some more interesting subjects like we always do on Conspiranormal.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.